California in the aftermath of the elections, <laughs> I feel a sense of responsibility, as uh, Rosalinda has also indicated, um, for the potentially massive impact of the passages of Proposition 21 and 22. Uh, indeed, not only for other states in this country, but for the world, for Asia and Latin America. As Proposition 209 is currently traveling to other states, um, Florida, for example, uh, the passage of Proposition 21 will unfortunately be interpreted as a message of affirmation for the increasing substitution of state-sanctioned punishment for education, for recreation, for jobs, for housing, for health, especially in relation to young people. And the passage of Proposition 22 will be interpreted as a message of repression directed at lesbians, gay men, and transgender people. The high-velocity routes along which capital travels the globe, also serve as conductors of ideology, of culture and ideology. A few months ago, during a trip to Rosario, Argentina, I um, learned that New York's mayor, Rudolph Giuliani, had just recently visited Rosario in order to promote his zero-tolerance strategy there, in order to suggest that the city of Rosario could benefit from the police practices of New York. <laughs> of course, the recent acquittal of the four policemen who killed Amadou Diallo led me to wonder about the long-range impact of importing New York's policing practices to Rosario, particularly at a time when people in Argentina uh, are demanding full disclosure of the torture, the murder, and disappearance of as many as 30,000 people uh, during the Dirty War. During the visit I spoke of to Argentina, I had the opportunity to visit a juvenile jail uh, in connection with my research on punishment practices. The women who arranged that visit were members of a group called um, Coordination of Prison Work, um, Coordinación de, uh, del Trabajo Carceral. Um, and we were able to meet with um, young boys inside uh, the jail uh, and were able to bear witness to the fact that um, they were held under such egregious conditions that their only manner of protest was to engage in practices of self-mutilation. Um, so they had um, slashes, open sores, and scars uh, um, on their limbs. 
And it seemed to me that that ironically recapitulated the torture and mutilation associated um, with the uh, dictatorship. At that particular time, some documents had been uh, discovered uh, uh, in the process of moving the main um, uh, police station in Rosario. Uh, documents that pointed to the culpability of a number of police officials and other uh, political officials. Uh, that's why it was so strange that uh, Giuliani uh, was you know, visiting uh, this place where, where people were attempting to come to grips with the, the horrors of the dirty war. In connection with the international conference um, unfolding here this weekend, I, I want to um, mention, because I do want to pay tribute to people who are uh, in the forefront of the struggle for human rights. Uh, I want to mention a conference that happened about um, a little over a year ago, December 1998, um, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, 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 Amnesty International and a number of other international human rights organizations convened a gathering of human rights defenders um, from throughout the world at the Palais de Chaillot in Paris where 50 years previously the Universal Declaration of Human Rights had been adopted by the United Nations. As one of the invited human rights defenders, I felt extremely privileged to be there among so many people and especially vast numbers of women who were active in a myriad of struggles from women in Chiapas defending the role of indigenous communities in envisioning a new social, economic, and political order in Mexico to women from Rwanda and Bosnia resisting rape and terror and genocide to women from Korea and the Philippines um, um, a, a attempting to um, place the, 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 the question of involuntary sexual services provided to the military uh, during World War II as an issue um, demanding reparation. Iranian and Afghan women challenging religious fundamentalism. Indigenous women in the Pacific Islands, from the Pacific Islands, continuing their decades-long struggle against nuclear tests. And Maori, Kori, Torres Strait Islander, and other Aboriginal women fighting to dismantle the network of colonial and racist oppressions that make land rights as well as other social and political rights so difficult uh, to achieve. Um, Indian women challenging the racism of the caste system. Women from South Africa who shared with us some of the work they are doing to guarantee the building of a new society that is not only free of racism but free of gender discrimination and domestic violence and homophobia. It was not only inspiring to see so many women on the 
front lines of global resistance. But to see that there's also a new global recognition as well, as the International Women's Conference in Beijing so dramatically signaled. So as we celebrate International Women's Day, it is important to acknowledge this new global recognition, to recognize the recognition of women's pivotal role in forging, in forging palpable hope for a better future. So this international gathering in San Diego, previously but now on the border of Mexico, um, will hopefully help us, inhabitants of California, whose ancestries link us to Latin America, Asia, the Pacific Islands, Africa, Europe, to regain our perspective and rekindle our hope. Rosalinda um, mentioned the uh, 1909 um, decision on the part of the Socialist International to declare an International Women's Day. Now, actually, there are multiple genealogies of International Women's Day. There's the women, the Russian women's strike for bread and peace in 1917 against the wishes of the revolutionary political leadership, which nonetheless helped to bring down the czar. Um, there was, of course, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York in 1911, during which 140 women, mostly Jewish and Italian immigrants, were killed. Um, the Socialist International, um, International's meeting um, that designated um, International Women's Day in March. And there was also um, an 1857 strike by, um, on March 8th, um, according to um, um, scholars of women's labor history, that um, it was a strike in New York of women in the needles trades, the garment and textile industry, demanding where they demanded higher wages, shorter working hours. Probably in those days, it was a demand for a 12-hour day. You know. <laughs> and generally better working conditions. What's interesting about the, the many, the multiple genealogies of International Women's Day is that they all highlight the struggles of women workers. And as a matter of fact, when the United Nations designated March 8th as International Women's Day at the beginning of the decade for women in 1970. Five was initiated, of course, by the International Conference in Mexico. Cuba marked this occasion by launching its attack against the second shift. Second shift? The shift that women do when they get home from work, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, and began to um, address some of the the major issues um, uh, that confront working women within a feminist framework. 
But what I'd like to say is that uh, international institutionalization of holidays uh, sometimes um, bother me. Um, I'm, I'm ambivalent about the institutionalization of, of, of holidays that mark struggles of marginalized populations and communities because that institutionalization usually represents simultaneous victories and defeats, culminations of courage and resistance, and at the same time, the flattening and the trivializing of the histories that these holidays are meant to mark. So when International Women's Day becomes another occasion for cards and roses <laughs> and potentially department store sales, I can see that uh, uh, in the future. And I'm certain that there are probably a lot of uh, um, internet sales under the rubric of International Women's Day. Um, so when this happens, of course, the irony of shifting from workers' resistance to consumerist chic should not be missed. Moreover, the tendency to assume that International Women's Day is a day for all women and it is a day for all women, but I want to examine what that means. Um, because uh, there are those who might assume that International Women's Day marks uh, the feminist recognition that since not all women are mothers, we need another kind of Mother's Day <laughs> for all women. And, of course, this controverts the working class history of March 8. And such an approach also evades the realities of those women who were um, meant, once meant to be memorialized on March 8. So I want to join um, Rosalinda Fregosa in, in asking you to use this occasion to think about uh, the fact that one-third of all the women in the world have not had access to the education they need to acquire a, minimal, um, a minimum literacy. In Asia and Africa, three-quarters of women over the age of 25 are illiterate. But we might also use this occasion to reflect on the connections between global illiteracy and the fact that now California, which once had uh, the, 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 the most um, 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 effective and the greatest public education system in the country, as a matter of fact, this, the system of higher education was dependent on good schools at the secondary and elementary level. And now California is number 41 in terms of proportionate spending on schools. That is to say, out of 50 states, California occupies the 41st place. But it is in the first place with respect to prison spending. 
the majority of the absolute poor in the world, the 1.3 billion absolute poor are women. And I say this because as we get as we often get drawn into the discourse on globalization, um, we frequently fail to think about what it might mean to call for global sisterhood. Um, but of course, those of you who are residents of the San Diego area should be far more sophisticated with respect to the class and race uh, dimensions of global capital, right? I mean, you know all about the uh, maquiladoras and the Mexican women and girls who serve as the source of super profits, right? Am I right? Yes and no. <laughs> Zilla Eisenstein wrote in her book, uh, which is called Global Obscenities, uh, the new technologies, and I'm quoting, the new technologies of communication, email, faxes, teleconferencing, hold out, automatize, um, automatize spheres of democratic possibility. But these exist alongside and within established anti-democratic parameters. The democratic possibilities of virtual media interlace with the reality that people of color white women and girls across the globe have less access to a living wage, reproductive health care, computers, and phone lines. Um, and of course, it need not be noted that it is not all people of color and not all white women whose lives unfold on the other side of the global information exchange. But she continues, uh, when we speak of information highways, we need to remember that one out of three women worldwide is illiterate and spends a significant portion of her day performing essentials like collecting wood and drawing water. Um, and of course, the hegemony of the United States um, is, in this context, a cause for great concern, um, especially given the speed with which repressive institutions and conservative ideas travel to the most far-flung areas of the globe. But still, it is, I think, the homelessness of global capital that poses the greatest threat to women throughout the world, a homelessness which means that uh, capital is no longer um, subjected to uh, the uh, regulations of specific nation states. So that garments bought by U.S. consumers are increasingly produced by women and girls in Asia, in Central America, South America, the um, Caribbean, under conditions that fall far below the putative minimum labor standards in the U.S., we can all examine the labels on our clothing uh, uh, this evening, and it would be, I'm um, persuaded, an important lesson uh, regarding uh, uh, what we are wearing on our bodies, the exploitation we walk around with every day. 
But this, of course, impels garment manufacturers who proudly exhibit the Made in the USA label to rely on the sweatshop labor of immigrant women and girls who have frequently traveled to the United States to escape the economic dislocation caused by transnational corporations in their home countries. A number of years ago, there was a wonderful campaign by Asian um, immigrant women's advocates uh, which revealed that Jessica McClintock sold prom dresses for $175 for which the women who produced them received a meager $5. And because the, sub, the contractor skipped out without paying uh, the uh, women, they didn't even receive the $5 for uh, um, some month and a half or two months of work. Now, fortunately, the, the, the boycott was successful. But when we talk about in, uh, episodes such as this, uh, we can see that it is not surprising that 20 years after the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which has been ratified by over 150 countries, 20 years later, the United States Senate, Senate still has not seen fit to ratify this treaty. I also want to urge you to consider that global sisterhood in the 21st century will be a failed venture if it is imagined primarily as a project of combining women's experiences and generating knowledge about women in various parts of the world, whether anthropological knowledge or, or legal knowledge, uh, um, about, the, about, these, about the putative similarities and differences uh, um, among northern and southern women. It will also be a failed venture if we are unable to discover a way out of the missionary ideology that positions those of us who inhabit privileged social positions in the northern countries as the saviors of our sisters who work on the global assembly line. So it's in this framework that I want to share with you some of my own um, experiences um, in doing research on women and punishment practices um, in a number of countries. Research and organizing around issues confronting people in prison, especially uh, within cross-national frameworks, pose very difficult questions. And I want to share with you some of the ideas that have taken shape around a collaborative project I've been involved in with um, Kumkum Bhavnani, who teaches sociology at UC Santa Barbara. Um, and I should perhaps begin by saying that as um, women of color researchers, I mean, this is a, 
um, category that used to be more popular uh, or used to have a different uh, um, um, significance than it has now. Now I see, you know, women of color cosmetics and you know, <laughs> all of that. I mean, it, it used to indicate uh, um, a willingness to move across, you know, racial uh, 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 national borders to develop um, uh, the kind of alliance-building uh, practice that uh, would be uh, radically transformative. So, so as I was saying, as women of color researchers, uh, uh, one of whom is uh, South Asian, Kumkum Babnani, and the other African-American, myself, who've been involved in anti-racist movements in the U.S. and in Britain for many years. Our perspectives are informed both by our experiences as activists within different national contexts and by our commitment to link our academic research to strategies for radical social change. But you've already heard all of that uh, in the introduction. So I'll just say that the study um, uh, we've done begins with the assumption that the over-utilization of imprisonment to address a range of social problems, which would be more appropriately dealt with by non-punitive institutions, that this constitutes a major contemporary crisis. And of course, the most recent um, uh, episode in this crisis is the passage of Proposition 21 that further criminalizes young people at a time when the, quote, crime rates of youth are declining, steadily declining. At a time when the educational system is in such terrible straits that it would appear to make more sense to focus more on education than on creating space for young people in adult prisons. The fact that we begin with that assumption means that our work is more linked to efforts to transform public policy and to activist strategies that emphasize the importance of including imprisoned women in a new public discourse of resistance to imprisonment than it is to the more conventional kinds of research agendas um, of generating knowledge about a subjugated group. We wanted to examine the general racialization of imprisonment practices, which of course have a disproportionate impact on women of color, on poor white women. We were interested in imprisoned women's critical perspectives about prison systems, about racialized and gendered prison systems, and about the way they might help to demystify the role of the state. Um, of course, uh, prisoners are always objects of research. 
they're never expected to be able to participate in the generation of knowledge. No one ever asks prisoners what they think about the failure of rehabilitation, for example, or any of these questions uh, that are um, discussed so uh, widely in scholarly and popular discourse. So, of course, what, what we tried to do was to render the boundaries between research and activism much more permeable than they usually are. We chose three countries for specific reasons, three countries where we would interview uh, women in prison. Um, no cell phones in the house. <laughs> I just heard a cell phone ringing. <laughs> I was recently in Tokyo, and there were great signs, no, no cell phone use in, in the hotel lobby. <laughs> so, so we need to do that here. <laughs> Um, in any event, um, we chose these. Um, we chose three countries for specific reasons, and of course, one was uh, the U.S. Um, and we are much more familiar with the penal system in the United States, and are concerned with the gendered character of the emergent prison industrial complex, which has resulted in the proliferation of women's prisons and an attendant intensification of penal repression. Uh, the largest prison in the world used to be located um, in Corona, uh, California Institution for Women. Okay, Now the largest women's prison in the world is located in Chowchilla. Uh, it's called Valley State. Sounds like a campus, doesn't it? Uh, but in any, any event, there are more women in prison in California today than there were women in prison in the entire country in 1970. I mean, that gives you a sense of uh, the um, degree to which um, the women's prison population has expanded so rapidly. And of course, the U.S. sends more people to prison per capita than, in, than any other capitalist country. Um, now, the Netherlands, which was the second country, is for the very first time experiencing an in, a significant increase in the number of prisoners. Uh, but it still has one of the lowest per capita rates of incarceration and a history of progressive penal reform. Um, it's been the impact of the drug war that has transformed uh, the um, punishment um, practices in the Netherlands uh, and that has caused it to move away from its pattern of decarceration. That is to say, reducing the number of people who go to prison each year. Um, and as a result, new prisons are being um, constructed. So as far as Western capitalist countries go, uh, 
the Netherlands is at the other end of the spectrum. So we, 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 we uh, interviewed women in prison in the U.S., women in prison in the Netherlands. And finally, we chose Cuba um, so that we might ascertain the differences, um, if any, between penal regimes for women in the capitalist countries and penal regimes uh, under, um, under uh, socialism or we might say the country that refuses to give up on socialism, <laughs> speaking of Cuba. Now, our study of imprisoned women in the U.S. began with the premise that race played a pivotal role in determining who goes to prison and how long a convicted woman remains behind bars. So we set out to discover the significance of race within the other two national settings as well. There isn't a great deal of literature on imprisoned women. There isn't a great deal of, of popular discourse on women in prison. And explanations usually point to the sparsity of, um, of women who are in prison, explanations for the sparsity of the literature and the discussion generally point to the small percentage of women um, in prison in comparison with their male counterparts. And of course it's true that women constitute a relatively small percentage uh, of prisoners. And this is true all over the world. Uh, um, Vivian Stern, who is author of the book A Sin Against the Future, Imprisonment in the World, um, writes, all over the world women make up a tiny minority of those locked up. On average, only one out of every 20 prisoners is a woman, yet women constitute roughly 50% of the population of any country, yet provide only 5% of its prisoners. This is not specific to any one country or region, but is reflected all over the world. There are variations. In Spain, the proportion of women in prison is 10%. In the U.S., over 6%, it's a little bit more than that now. In France, 4%. In Russia, 3%. And in Morocco, it is 2%. But nowhere in the world do women make up more than one in ten of the whole population. But what is rarely taken into consideration is the fact that modes of punishment are both racialized and, and gendered in ways that indicate a historical continuum linking women's imprisonment with, for example, incarceration in mental institutions. Uh, um, and with modes of private punishment such as domestic violence. Uh, uh, and you know, I can say simplistically that women get punished elsewhere. So not as many women have to be punished by the state. They get punished at home. And it's very important, I think, to see uh, what Adrian Howe calls a punishment continuum. Uh, in women's lives so that um, we don't argue that, well, women just don't commit as many crimes as men do, uh, and that's why they're not in prison. As a matter of fact, um, the relationship between crime and punishment is something that needs to be contested. Because many, um, many activists and scholars uh, persuasively argue that 
the factors that are responsible for punishment have very little to do with crime. Which isn't to say that people in prison have not committed crimes. But it is to say that that is not primarily the reason they're in prison. They're in prison because of increased surveillance, uh, so that in some communities the very same crimes might be committed as in other communities, but there are those communities that are under constant surveillance. So stealing a car uh, by a member of one community might lead to, with three strikes, life in prison, whereas stealing a car for a joyride by a member of another community might uh, be something that the judge... uh, um, tells the mother, you know, you know, watch out for your son. He's not behaving well. But anyway, <laughs> let me get back uh, uh, to my... So I, I also want to point out that aside from this punishment continuum, we have to recognize that within the context of this developing global prison industrial complex. The relatively small percentages of imprisoned women are now rising. Um, And as a matter of fact, the rate of increase in women's incarceration has surpassed the rate of increase in men's uh, incarceration. As international women's movements contest patriarchal structures and ideologies, a new consciousness of women's rights within private settings has begun to subvert old attitudes of acquiescence toward misogynist violence. However, even as the private punishment of women becomes less hidden from view, and less taken for granted. The state-inflicted punishment of women still remains relatively invisible. In the U.S., in Europe, as well as in countries in which people of European descent are most dominant, women of color are disproportionately targeted by contemporary modes of public punishment. Thus, the hyper-invisibility of women's prisons reflects a larger contemporary tendency to incarcerate structures of racism within those institutions that function within public discourse as sites where expendable populations and problems are deposited and hidden away. Let me talk for a moment about the San Francisco County Jail, um, which is a very interesting place. It's a jail, of course, not a prison, a jail, uh, where people uh, can do no more than one year in terms of their time, or where they are held pending trial. At the program facility of the San Francisco County Jail, specific efforts um, are undertaken to minimize racism, as well as sexism and homophobia in the operation of the jail. In fact, according to the director, each prisoner is required to sign a contract upon being booked into the program facility and which she or he agrees not to engage in racist, sexist, or homophobic behavior. And I just want to read one section of the contract. 
I understand that I am required to treat others and myself with respect and dignity. I understand that racism, sexism, anti-gay, lesbian remarks, glorification of substance abuse or criminal behavior, and any other form of antisocial behavior will result in loss of privileges, extra work duty, or removal from the program facility. Now, this clause in the contract provided jail personnel with the leverage to avoid a more complicated uh, discussion of racism. Um, jail rules bar prisoners from exhibiting perceptibly racist behavior. And because anti-racism as well as anti-sexism and um, uh, you know, work against uh, homophobia was linked to the regimes of power, and surveillance and attributed to prisoners as subjects of prison authority, it became difficult to think about racism in terms of the structural, um, um, the structures of the jail. So discussions with some jail personnel who thought of themselves as progressive revealed that they were proud of their pioneering roles as overseers charged with identifying potential violations of the anti-racist, anti-sexist, and anti-homophobic um, uh, uh, rule. Um, in this sense, the pattern was a microcosmic reflection of the larger contemporary proclivity to relegate the process of minimizing Racism to the U.S. legal sphere, which constitutes a subject as this rational, free individual, and to use legal prohibitions as evidence of the decline of racism in civil society, which means that we now have laws, of course, uh, that render uh, racism illegal. Ergo, racism is over. It no longer exists. And many of the prisoners we interviewed at that site, uh, both women of color and white women, noticed this uh, disparity between the official policy and the treatment they themselves received uh, and provided some astute political analyses regarding the persistence of racism within a putatively anti-racist framework. Uh, which um, in many ways uh, uh, captures our present predicament in the free world as well. Um, but I'm not going to talk about Ward Connolly. Uh, <laughs> there was a woman who said that some guards treated prisoners differently based on their racial, racial uh, backgrounds. As a matter of fact, there was one woman who said that a, a group of the black women prisoners had decided to uh, monitor certain deputies' practices of allowing white prisoners to spend more time on the telephone than, um, than black and Latino prisoners. Uh, of course, this was a, an interesting example of an everyday strategy of resistance to racism within the jail. But of course, questions about racism didn't always travel well from one site to uh, the other. Um, in the Netherlands, 
there was very little overt discussion of racism in the prison. And at the level of the administration, uh, people indicate, well, yeah, you know, you have a point. This is something we should probably think about. But it hadn't yet been um, addressed. A number of the women we interviewed, the women in prison we interviewed in the Netherlands, helped us to understand the um, implicit xenophobia that informed attitudes and behavior toward prisoners from South America. A Colombian woman pointed out that there was, uh, she said, there is a lot of racism here. She said, if you're Colombian, if you're black or from another country, they don't give you anything. There's nothing for Dutch people to begin with in jail, and even less if they are Colombian, she said. Another South American woman also criticized xenophobic attitudes of the custodial personnel when she told us about a skin rash that she had to had that had gone untreated. And she said, it's not normal uh, that my skin is like this. It's been about 20 days that I've been asking for the doctor. If I had been Dutch, the doctor would have shown up immediately. But then there was a white Dutch woman who shared with us her critique of the general tendency on the part of the Dutch to represent themselves as egalitarian. Uh, So she began by saying that I always feel attracted to other cultures, but I didn't catch it by birth because my mother and father are totally white and they were very, and she uh, didn't complete her thought, yeah, I think my father was a racist in a way that he doesn't speak it aloud, but in his thinking, like I've seen with so many Dutch, they say, I am not a racist, but if you see their behavior, you can see that their behavior has racist elements. Uh, And I should point out that um, all of the Dutch women spoke English. So so this is a transcription of uh, her remarks in English. She also pointed out that there was a pattern among prison guards and administrators of infantilizing prisoners from South America. And this is another quote. So if they deal with the Spanish women, they deal with them like they're not grown-up people, like they're dealing with children, you know. And I'm very much irritated by that type of approach. I hate it. I really hate it. Um, She also indicated that there was a pattern of belittling non-Dutch-speaking prisoners, and particularly women whose cultural and language practices involved speaking with their hands. Uh, Like me. (laughs) (laughs) So our interviews in the Dutch prison revealed that women of color were not the only prisoners who had thought about the workings of racism. Um, As a matter of fact, one white, white Dutch woman who expressed Solidarity with the women from South America indicated that she was attempting to learn Spanish in order to communicate with her uh, co-prisoners. In Cuba, the prisoners' reluctance to engage in discussions about race seemed to be linked to the way in which popular discourses on race and racism Um, in Cuba are overdetermined by the particular history of racism in the United States and by Cuban solidarity with anti-racist activists in black, Puerto Rican, Native American, Asian American movements. So that, I mean, it was quite amazing. The women in prisons 
spoke with ease about such figures as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and although most of them were too young to have experienced the Cuban solidarity campaign that uh, developed around my case during the early 70s, uh, uh, many of them had learned about my um, history as well. As a matter of fact, uh, um, there was a song, that a popular song, when I was in jail, it was just called Angela Davis, and when I went to Cuba in, right after my acquittal, uh, and arrived at the airport at 2 o'clock in the morning. The song was like blasting all the place, and thousands and thousands of people. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm walking down. Well, anyway. Anyway, a lot of the women were singing that song, right? This is like uh, almost 30 years later, and, and most of them, many of them hadn't been born. Uh, so the, the, they, the inter all of the interviewees, insisted that racism was not an issue within the prison nor within the society at large. Um, when we asked one woman whether she felt that there was a way to talk about race that was enlightening and not indicative of discrimination, yes, she answered, you can talk about it in order to unify instead of s separate or discriminate. The more unity there is between people, white and black, there would be a better world, more unified. She also felt that people in the U.S. might learn important les lessons from Cuba about the quest for racial equality. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I can't go on and, and, and share uh, some of the really interesting aspects of those conversations uh, uh, in, in Cuba about issues of race and sexuality, uh, um, sexism. Um, but I do want to say before I leave this and begin to wind up, uh, my remarks that um, even though there was this uh, uh, reluctance to think about the possibility that um, that uh, there were structures of racism uh, in in Cuba. Uh, There were ways in which the very structures of the prison uh, tended to um, tended to, I would say, uh, prevent the congealing of of institutional racism in the way it has happened in prisons in this country, and. The relative conditions of confinement in Cuba revealed an attempt to respect the United Nations standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners, which the U.S. state and federal prisons and jails so obviously violate. Uh, and this is not just my opinion. Uh, you can look at various uh, reports uh, um, from the United Nations and other human, right, uh, human rights organizations. Uh, uh, a couple of brief examples about the extent to which um, the prison system in Cuba uh, differs fundamentally. Uh, Health care, for example, is readily available. Um, as a matter of fact, I know this might be controversial, but according to the standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners, um, the state has the responsibility to provide the best possible health care for people who are confined. 
That is because they have no opportunity to seek it for themselves. Um, so that in Cuba, children and prisoners get the best health care. Uh, and I said this might be controversial because there's this uh, principle that governs popular discourse on prisons that's, that's called principle of less eligibility, which means that prisoners are, are uh, supposed to be the least eligible for uh, that prison conditions should not be better than the worst conditions in the free world, than the worst conditions uh, for, uh, say, a homeless person or whatever. But anyway, that's another um, subject. Um, Health care is readily available from simple dental procedures to major surgery. Uh, as a matter of fact, given the impact of the U.S. embargo, Cuban medicine has begun to integrate alternative treatments such as acupuncture and herb, uh, herbal medicine. Uh, the women's prison in Havana, as a matter of fact, has an organic garden uh, where herbs are grown and a pharmacy where organic um, herbal medicine is uh, made. Um, another really interesting aspect of the system there is that the wage scale is the same on the inside as on the outside. Uh, so that the same agencies govern uh, the you know, wages for, for prisoners or non-prisoners. So if you are a um, carpenter and you work in the, in the prison, you get the same as you would make on the outside. Or if I met a woman who was a veterinarian who was continuing to do her work. As long as your crime, crime has nothing to do with your vocation and there is the opportunity to um, pursue that vocation within the prison, then that is encouraged. Uh, uh, there's guaranteed employment after incarceration. There's a special agency that provide that that places uh, people who are just getting out of prison. Um, children of prisoners are not separated um, in the way. Don't go into a, a foster care system. Don't become. Uh, um, aren't controlled by the state. So there, there are a number of things that I would talk about if I had more time. Many of the structural and procedural aspects in, of imprisonment, which simultaneously incorporate and camouflage racism in US prison practices, are not a part of the Cuban system thanks to their um, compliance with, with international standards. So I want to conclude by, by saying that many of the contradictions we confronted uh, in this research project, our knowledge that prisoners were ubiquitous objects of research, uh, the discrepancy between official policy and everyday practice, um, the fact that assurances of equality could proliferate and that equality was imagined as the morally correct action of each free individual toward the other, backed up by the force of a state that would never be analyzed as a subject. All of this was about the nature of a liberal system and 
also about the limits of a research methodology that fails to address its own hegemonic context first and last. And I want to point to the prisoner from the Netherlands who offered the information that she was learning Spanish in order to communicate with her fellow prisoners. That, it seems to me, is a far better example of how to create a just society than a state like California that abolishes affirmative action, bilingual education, while building more prisons to hold those populations who cannot fail to be endlessly misapprehended by the system. Thus, the results of our research exceed the scope of most research agendas that can be imagined around prisoners including even those that, that are significant, like gathering information about health care in prison, family relations, social welfare, and even race, racism. The prison was our best research site, not because conditions are so bad there, but because the segmentation of the prison system away from our consciousness allows the liberal state to manage its population to attempt to solve the problem of racism without considering the most degraded of its subjects would be contrary to any agenda. Still, the information in this process would also outstrip its intended uses, since learning the language of those with whom you seek to build community is not only a means toward bettering conditions in prison, but toward their betterment in the free world outside. Thank you.